can turn to Isaiah, the sixth chapter. We're going to read one through eight this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew and called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It's always a privilege uh, to be able to come and worship together and certainly to learn from the word. <clears throat> it's always a privilege to be able to um, preach and teach the word. Somewhat of a fearful privilege. And uh, I just want to uh, forewarn you this morning uh, about three things. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> I'm really old, and because of that I've read a lot of books on the holiness of God and the character of God. I've heard lots of sermons preached on the holiness of God, particularly this passage that I'm going to preach on. Because I'm old, my memory somewhat fails me at times. So um, if you hear something particularly profound this morning or impactful, uh, I can assure you that it's not an original thought of mine, that I borrowed it or unintentionally plagiarized someone much more intelligent and insightful than I am. That's number one. Number two, because I'm really old, I, for some reason, tend to cry a lot more than I used to. And some of you may have experienced that already if you've been here for any period of time. And Liz asked me last night, so are you going to cry tomorrow when you preach? <laughs> Just be ready for that. And, uh, and number three, um, what was number three? Say, <laughs> my memory fails. So I'm just going to leave it with number two. Well, if any of you watch the news, spend 10 or 15 minutes watching the nightly news, uh, it's pretty apparent that people that uh, our society, that the world uh, is in complete moral and spiritual meltdown. 
Of course, we know that mankind is sinful. We know that the world suffers under the effects of the fall. But it seems like the descent into the most heinous, the most repugnant, the most perverse and wicked forms of sin has begun to spiral downward at an exponential rate that is absolutely mind-boggling. Marauding gangs burst into stores. They ransack and steal everything in sight. Murder is on the rise in every major city. People are gunned down over trivial disagreements because someone got cut off in a freeway or because someone thought that an individual almost ran over a cat. That just happened in L.A. about a week ago. Or innocent children happen to be at a party when a carload of gang members drive by and open fire, killing them. Every form of sexual perversion and deviance is celebrated and paraded in the street. The LGBTQ movement is praised and defended. Men want to be women. Women want to be men, so they dress up. They take hormones, and they even mutilate themselves in order to deny the way God has created them. Children are groomed and trafficked in the sex trade, and the most innocent, the most helpless, the most defenseless of all children in the womb are killed by the thousands every day simply because their existence is not convenient. And increasingly, the murder of children is celebrated. Shout your abortion. Certain state governments have even proposed legislation allowing for the murder of children up to several weeks after they're born. To add to all that sinful madness, there are multiple ongoing wars in the world, most of which you never hear about. There's war in Myanmar, war in Ethiopia, war in Yemen, ongoing war in Afghanistan, and of course we all know about the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, the rape and slaughter of innocent civilians by Russian troops, and now apparently Putin has blatantly threatened that he's willing to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine and its allies. China is saber-rattling towards Taiwan. North Korea is launching missiles over Japan. And to top that off, our economies are going into recession. Prices are rising. Gas and groceries are becoming unaffordable for some. People are living paycheck to paycheck. Homelessness is rampant. Political and social division and animosity is at an all-time high. Political leaders can't be trusted and are passing legislation that contributes to the chaos, protects sin, and punishes those who oppose sin. And this dramatic increase in sinful expression has contributed to a rise in fear, hopelessness, anxiety, and despair. So it's no wonder that drug and alcohol abuse are also on the rise. Drug overdoses are on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 48,000 people died by suicide in the United States in 2021. 
And suicide is the second leading cause of death in the world. Depression and anxiety plague millions. Do you know that 22% of people in the United States have reported suffering from depression in the last two weeks alone? People are anxious, fearful, and without hope. So, what's the cause of all of this sinful chaos and hopelessness? Well, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And I would expand on that a bit. I would say that what you know about God, what you believe about God, is the most important thing about you. Not just passing superficial thoughts about God. But what do you know deep down? What do you believe about God in your heart of hearts? That's the most important thing about you. Because what you know and believe about God will determine everything about you. It'll determine how you think. It'll determine how you respond to blessings, to prosperity. It'll determine how you respond to challenges and trials, and it'll determine how you respond to tragedy. What you know and believe about God will determine how you live your life. It'll determine whether you live a life that's full of goodness and hope and joy, or whether you live a life that's characterized by the kind of wickedness that I listed earlier, and whether you end up in hopeless despair. What you know and believe about God won't just determine how you live your life now. It will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this knowledge of God is knowing who he is, what he's like, and knowing him in intimate, personal, saving relationship. Knowing God the Son, Jesus Christ, knowing him as Savior and Lord. So, well, that's the answer to the why of all the sinful chaos. That's the answer to why there is so much wickedness in the world that's the answer to why there is so much depression and hopelessness and despair. The world does not know God. They may know things about God, but they don't know Him as He really is. Or they reject and deny what they actually do know, and they certainly don't know Him in a saving relationship. It's really Romans Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, being played out over and over again for thousands of years, and it's being played out today. They know about God. They see His power. They see His divine nature, but they don't honor Him as God. They reject and deny Him. They worship the creature rather than the Creator, and God gives them over to the consequences of unrestrained sin. He pours out his wrath on that sin. 
That's what's going on in the world today. And unfortunately, this lack of knowledge of God is also rampant in the church. R.C. Sproul, before his death, said, the greatest crisis in the Christian church today is that they don't actually know God. They don't know who he is or what he's like. That's what R.C. said. And this results in a shallow or irreverent worship, or what's not really worship at all, results in a church that looks and acts no different than the world. Often there's just as much immorality, sexual sin, divorce, substance abuse, just as much hopelessness, just as much depression in the church as there is in the world. Some churches, some churches even ordain as pastors those who openly practice and are unrepentant of the most perverse sexual sin, sin that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah over. Why? Because so many so-called churches simply do not know God, certainly not as he's revealed himself in his word. Or like the world, they deny or reject what God has revealed about himself, and instead they create a God they're comfortable with, which is no God at all. It's an idol. The way to grow in knowledge of God is through his word. Everything that he's revealed about himself in his word, that's where we grow in right knowledge of God. I had a neighbor once who professed to be a believer, and I think he is, at least now he is. Um, but he used to tell me that uh, he didn't want to go to all those Bible studies. He didn't want to uh, read and study theology and doctrine. He just wanted to love Jesus. Well, I told him this, and I'll tell you, you can't love Jesus if you don't know who he is and what he's like. And the more you know Jesus as revealed in Scripture, the more you will love and worship and be willing to obey him. So, because of this lack of knowledge of God, that's why we're going to look at this especially profound revelation of God in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We need to know God. We need to know who He is and what He's like. We need to know God. Now, before we get into this passage, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to learn from your word. Keep us from error as we study and listen and read, as we preach, and use the revelation of who you are and what you're like to change us, to make us more pleasing to you and better ambassadors for your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So first, I, I do need to give you some context. Now, if you've been uh, coming to the uh, equipping hour and have heard um, Caleb's teaching on the first uh, chapters of Isaiah, you've already gotten some of that. But uh, the passage opens referencing uh, the death of King Uzziah. So Uzziah was uh, king in Judah for about 52 years. He started out as a really good king, started out as a teenager, and uh, did a great job. His rule over Judah brought prosperity. Judah flourished. Their economy was strong. The military was powerful and effective. They lived in relative peace. It was all good. But, but then at some point, Uzziah gave in to pride and arrogance. He began to think that all this prosperity and power was due to his ability, his talent, his intelligence, rather than due to God's provision and protection, God's grace and God's blessing. He began to fall into error in his knowledge and belief about God and about himself. He even thought that he could take over the role of the priests and enter the temple to offer sacrifices on the altar. That was a role that God had specifically ordained and reserved for the priests. So he disregarded and denied what he knew about God, and this led to his disobeying what God had commanded. What he believed about God led to how he lived his life. And as a result, God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and eventually he died. He died a leper. Once a great king, now dead because he disobeyed God because of what he believed about God. Judah was also in decline. Moral and spiritual chaos became the norm. They had turned away from God. They disregarded and rebelled against the Holy One of Israel. They no longer worshipped God. They did not know God. Immorality, violence, drunkenness, pride, arrogance, injustice, and idolatry were paraded in the street. Immorality was promoted and celebrated. Israel had become a spiritual harlot. They were calling evil good and good evil, just like today. In fact, so much of the description of Judah in chapters 1 through 5 sounds just like our world. Well, as a result, God is about to bring judgment down on Judah. At the same time, he promises future hope and restoration. So, Isaiah, as God's prophet, pronounces six woes or impending judgments over Israel for their sin, over Judah for their sin. Eventually, the prosperity and peace that they've known for years will be gone. The temple will be destroyed and Judah will be taken into Babylonian captivity. Judah had placed their trust in an earthly sinful king, but he was still a symbol of hope and security for the people. And now he's dead, judged by God. And the people are undoubtedly in turmoil, hopeless, fearful, anxious about the future, but they still don't repent. 
That's the first five chapters of Isaiah. That's a state of things when Isaiah comes to the temple. He comes to seek God, to worship. He's probably also in turmoil, probably anxious and fearful, knowing the sinful condition of Israel and knowing that judgment is coming. So what does God do? He doesn't tell Isaiah to uh, suck it up and be a man. God doesn't say he's changed his mind about bringing the foreign armies to destroy Jerusalem. God doesn't say he'll give Isaiah his best life now. No. God graciously gives him a vision of the heavenly temple where God is on the throne. Uzziah, the earthly king, may be dead and buried, but God, the true king, the king over all creation, the king of kings, is alive and he's ruling. And that's where Isaiah 6 begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. And the word translated as Lord here is Adonai, which refers to his sovereignty. This means that even though Uzziah The earthly king is dead. God is alive, and he's sovereign. He's in control. God is ruling over Israel. He's ruling over the nations that will come to judge Israel. God is ruling. And in the vision, he sees that the Lord is high and lifted up. And that means that his throne is above all other thrones. He is above all other kings. He is above and beyond all other authorities. He is the king of kings. And who is the Lord sitting on the throne? 
Well, the vision of God that Isaiah receives is likely a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Christ is the King of kings. Christ is on the throne. Christ is the sovereign Lord. Isaiah also sees that the train of his robe filled the temple, and in ancient monarchies, the length of the train of a king's robe was added to or lengthened even more when he conquered another kingdom. So the length of his robe uh, speaks to or emphasizes the extent, greatness of God's sovereign rule. So the Lord is sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord is sovereign. He rules over all. He rules over creation. He rules over nature. He sends and withholds the rain and causes crops to grow. He provides for the beasts of the field. He rules over the angels and demons and Satan. They can do nothing without his permission or direction. He rules over men. Every word we speak, every action we take is governed by the Lord's providence. He rules over life and death. He kills and makes alive. He rules over nations, over all authorities. He is above all other rulers in power and authority. He rules over princes and kings and emperors, governors and presidents and dictators. The Lord rules over all of them. They can do nothing without his consent or direction. He turns their hearts where he would have them go. The mightiest ruler, the greatest earthly king, serves and is ruled over by the king of kings, the one and only true and eternal sovereign, the Lord God Almighty. He is high and lifted up. He rules over heaven and earth. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 1 Chronicles 29.11 and 12, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens, And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. In Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. He's on the throne, working all things according to the counsel of His will. And in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things 
not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God is on the throne, and he is in complete control. He is sovereign. Then Isaiah continues to describe the vision in verses 2 and 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the seraphim are a special class of angelic beings that are only mentioned here in Scripture. And the name seraphim means burning ones, the burning ones, or fiery ones. These angelic beings who are they're similar to the four living creatures that are described in Revelation 4, 6 through 8. They're engaged in ongoing worship and proclamation of the holiness and glory of God. They're powerful, sinless creatures who burn with passion for the holiness and glory of God. Yet even though they're without sin, they can't look on the holy and glorious God, so they cover their faces with two of their wings. Even though the seraphim are sinless, they cover their feet in humble recognition of their lowly creatureliness in the presence of the glorious Holy One of Israel. And they call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's the meaning of holiness? What does it mean to be holy? We sing about it. We're going to sing it in close this morning of our service. Holy actually has two meanings, and they are certainly uh, both in view here. So the primary meaning is to cut or separate, to set apart. God is separate and distinct from His creation. He is unlike creation. Some of the ways that He is unlike us, is in those attributes that only God possesses. We don't possess these attributes. And I should point out also in verse 3 that the, the word Lord is not Adonai. In verse, as it is in verse 1, in verse 3, uh, it is the word Yahweh, or the unspoken name of God, the name that God identifies himself with to Moses is the great I am, the self-existent one. So God is separate from us. The Lord is eternal without beginning or end. God is uncreated and depends on nothing outside of himself. He is simplicity, which means that he can't be divided into separate parts. He's also a trinity, three persons in one. God is omniscient. He knows all things. 
from all eternity, and he never learns anything. He's omnipotent for all-powerful. Nothing is hard or impossible for God, and God is omnipresent. God is fully present everywhere all the time. God is not like us. He is holy. God also transcends His creation and those attributes that we do share being created in His image. God's goodness is beyond human goodness, and it's the source of all goodness. His creativity is beyond comprehension and uniqueness, complexity, and perfection. His wisdom is supreme and without error. His knowledge is complete. His justice is always fair, pure, and impartial. His faithfulness is unwavering. His mercy never fails. And His grace is truly undeserved. God transcends far and above those attributes that we share. That's that's the separate and transcendent aspect of holiness. And the second meaning refers to moral purity. There is no sin, no evil, no wickedness, no moral failing or impurity, no imperfection in God. And the seraphim repeat that God is holy three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So, this is significant because in ancient Hebrew literature, to repeat a word or phrase was to give it emphasis. So, we would use exclamation points, but the Hebrews used repetition. Most of the time, you'll only see a word repeated twice, such as when uh, Jesus would preface his words or teaching with truly, truly, which meant you better listen up because what I'm about to say is the absolute truth. But to repeat something three times was to give supreme or superlative emphasis, and this is only done a few other times in Scripture. In Jeremiah 7, 4, when the temple of the Lord is repeated three times. And in Revelation 8.13, when an angel announces three woes over the earth, woe, woe, woe. So the angels proclaim, holy, 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 which means that God is separate and distinct from all others. He is above and beyond all others. He transcends men, angels, and all of creation in holiness. There is no comparison between God and His creation. There is no comparison between God and man, even though we are created in His image. Because the difference in quality and degree between God and man is the difference between us and a worm crawling on the floor of the ocean. And it's infinitely, infinitely greater even than that. No other attribute of God is repeated three times. Scripture never says God is love, love, love doesn't say that God is wise, wise, wise. It doesn't say that God is grace, grace, grace. He's all of those things. 
But Scripture says he is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely, eternally, and infinitely pure, perfect, and without sin. He is the most holy one of all. His holiness determines and governs all of his other attributes. All that God is, is holy. His love is holy. His wisdom is holy. His goodness is holy. His mercy and grace are holy. His thoughts are holy thoughts. His will is a holy will. His decrees, His laws, His judgments are holy. God's justice is a holy justice, and His wrath is a holy wrath. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. All that God is, all that God wills, all that God determines, All that God does is infinitely greater, infinitely superior, infinitely sinless, infinitely pure, and infinitely perfect. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. John Piper says, In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. Only the Lord is holy, holy, holy. And not only do the seraphim declare that God is holy, but they declare that the whole earth is full of His glory. And the glory of God is the revelation or the outshining of His person, His attributes, His character, His will, and His works. It may not seem like the earth is full of His glory, but if we look with spiritually redeemed eyes, The presence, the person, the power, and the providence of God are seen everywhere. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens and the earth, all of creation, reveal the glory of God. They show us that God is a God of power, diversity, beauty, goodness, and love. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made 
so they are without excuse. Yes, the whole earth is full of His glory. The revelation of God's sovereignty, His holiness, His glory is so overwhelming, so profound, that in verse says it says that the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This, this heavenly temple is shaking and rumbling to the very core, to the foundation, and is filling with smoke. What this may be picturing is God's wrath against sin. Because God is so infinitely holy and pure, those who sin, sin against a holy God, and that sin is infinitely offensive. God's judgment and wrath against sin is growing, it's shaking, it's rumbling, it's smoking, and it's about to be unleashed on deserving sinners. That's the revelation that Isaiah is given. It's what he sees in the temple. He sees that God is sovereign. God is holy. He's surrounded by six-winged angelic burning ones declaring God's holiness and glory. The temple is shaking with the impending judgment and wrath of God. And Isaiah sees who God is. He sees what he's like. He's given profound knowledge of God, and he believes it. His knowledge of God then opens his eyes to who he is. His knowledge of God opens his eyes to who Isaiah is and what Isaiah is like and what everyone else in Israel is like. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah calls down judgment on himself. That's the meaning of woe is me. I deserve judgment. I deserve damnation. I deserve condemnation. I deserve God's wrath. Then he says he's lost. A better translation is, I am ruined. I am undone. I'm literally coming apart. I'm disintegrating in the presence of God's holiness. I'm disintegrating in the knowledge of God's holiness and my own sinfulness. And what, what does Isaiah identify as his great sin? After all, I mean, he's a man of God. He's a prophet for God. He's probably the most godly man in all of Israel. He wasn't a blasphemer. He wasn't guilty of murder, robbery, drunkenness, sexual immorality, nothing like that. No, he says he's a man of unclean lips. His speech, the words that come out of his mouth are unclean. His words are sinful. And and he was a prophet that spoke for God. Now, Scripture tells us that our words reveal what's in our hearts. If our hearts are clean, our words will be clean. If our hearts are sinful, our words will be sinful. 
Jesus said it in Luke 6.45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Isaiah's problem was really a heart problem. His heart was sinful. His heart was wicked. And everyone else in Judah had the same problem. Their lips were unclean, so their hearts were unclean. Their hearts were sinful. Isaiah, up until this point, may have been comparing himself to everyone else in Judah, and by that standard, he seemed to be doing pretty good. But compared to God's holiness, compared to God's infinite purity, he's ruined. He deserves God's judgment and wrath. He knows it. Charles Spurgeon said, The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even with dread and alarm. That was certainly Isaiah's response. Knowledge of God brought knowledge of self, and he's filled with awe, dread, and alarm. He's humbled. He deserved judgment. He's lost, undone. He's ruined. But then, in verses 6 and 7, we see the holy mercy and grace of God. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So just pause there. Can you imagine what was going through Isaiah's mind at this point? Here's this burning, six-winged, angelic creature flying towards him with a red-hot, flaming coal. And Isaiah knows that to see God is to die, and he knows that he's horribly sinful and deserves God's wrath. He had to be thinking, this is it. I'm dead. This flaming angel is about to kill me as the executioner of God's judgment. But that's not what happens. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The angel touches his mouth with the coal and says, your sins are atoned for. So the coal from the altar represents the purification of sin. Purification of sin through blood sacrifices. And we know that those blood sacrifices in the Old Covenant looked forward to the ultimate atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. By His blood, all our sins are atoned for. By His blood, our guilt is removed. By His blood, we're made righteous and can stand before a holy God, no longer condemned, no longer under God's judgment. Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is Isaiah, humbled in the presence of the holy God, acutely aware of his sin and guilt, confessing that sin and deserved judgment. He sees himself as hopeless and ruined, and the Lord, who is holy, extends holy mercy and grace, forgiving his sin, atoning for his sin, removing his guilt. Now he's cleansed of sin. He's made right with God. And the Lord speaks to him. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So when God asks who will go, who will represent us? Who will serve as my ambassador? Who will take my message to the people? Isaiah's response is immediate. He doesn't ask how long he'll have to go. He doesn't ask where he'll have to go or what he needs to take with him. He doesn't ask how hard the mission will be. Isaiah doesn't say, that he's going to have to plan and prepare for the mission. He's going to have to raise enough support. He doesn't say, well, I'll have to pray about it until I have a sense of peace before I can give you an answer. No. His response is immediate. Send me. Isaiah didn't have to think about his response to God's question because he had seen God on the throne, the high and lifted up sovereign over the universe, the king of kings. He had seen, come to know, and believed that God is holy, 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 infinitely separate, infinitely good, infinitely pure, infinitely perfect in all his attributes. He had seen He had come to know and believe that the Lord is glorious and the whole earth is full of His glory. He had seen His own sin and He had seen, come to know and believe that the God is merciful and gracious and He showed mercy on an undeserving sinner with unclean lips and an unclean heart. The Lord cleansed him of his sin and made it possible for him to stand in His presence. So Isaiah is overwhelmed with thankfulness. He's overwhelmed with joyful relief. He's overwhelmed by the undeserved mercy and saving grace of God. He deserved death and hell. And he was given life in God's presence, no longer under judgment. Because of his knowledge of God, because he truly believed in who God is and what he had done, because he knew God as Savior and Lord of his life, he was willing to go anywhere. He was willing to do anything that God asked or required of him. No sacrifice was too great. God had given him forgiveness and life, and Isaiah was ready to live his life for the Lord. He was transformed. He was changed forever. 
by his knowledge of God. Now, I once heard uh, Paul Washer in a sermon say something to this effect. He said, if you're run over by a 30-ton logging truck, you will be changed forever. But God is bigger than a logging truck. So you can't have an encounter with God. You can't come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and not be changed forever. Isaiah was changed forever. Have you been changed forever? I said in the beginning that what you know and believe about God will change the way you think, the way you respond, the way you live your life. So here are some general applications. If you know that God is absolutely sovereign and you believe it, and you should at this point, you will be anxious for nothing. You will not fear the future. You will consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, frustrations, and tragedy because you know that our sovereign Lord is working all things together for your good and His glory. He's conforming you to the image of Christ and preparing you to be in His presence. If you know and believe that God is holy, holy, holy in His person, in His will, in His works, then you will kill sin and you will pursue righteous and obedient living. You will be holy because God is holy. And you will be content with whatever God has determined is best for you because His wisdom and His will are holy. Finally, if we know how much we deserve God's wrath, if we know that we have received the mercy and saving grace of God, if we know God, if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we will, like Isaiah, be willing to go anywhere and do anything. Isaiah was changed and willing to go. And this certainly should be the response of every believer Every Christian saved by grace has been changed forever. And we should willingly and joyfully say, here I am. Send me. No crossway. Can you say with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Are you willing to take the gospel where it has yet to be preached? Are you willing to leave the comforts of family and home to serve where there is desperate need and darkness? Or will you go to your neighbor, to your co-workers, and tell them of their sin and their need of the only Savior, Jesus Christ, regardless of their response?
Will you stand for God's revealed truth if it means you lose reputation and career? Will you say, here I am, send me? Because you should. You must. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, then today is the day of salvation. Turn from sin. Turn from unbelief. And throw yourself on the infinite mercy of Christ. Trust in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, paying the price for your sin, absorbing God's wrath that you deserve. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation and follow him. I want to close uh, with a quote by C.T. Studd. He was a missionary to China, India, and Africa in the late 1800s. This is what C.T. Studd said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Amen. Father, thank you for all that you have revealed of yourself in your word. May we be comforted in your sovereignty, humbled and in awe of your holiness and overwhelmed with gratitude for your saving grace brought to us in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, suffering the punishment we deserved, death on the cross so that we could be granted life. Grow our desire and our willingness to go anywhere and do anything that you require. May we always live our lives for your pleasure and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.